The Gist is brought to you by Indochino, creators of -of one-of-a-kind men's suits that are customized just for you. Get any premium suit for just $3.99 plus free shipping by going to Indochino.com and using the promo code GIST at checkout. And by Wonder Capital. Invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com money. Invest in Wonder Capital's solar funds. Do well and do good. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> It's Thursday, May 19th, 2016, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Fracas in the frozen north. Ottawa uproar, rumble in the tundra. The Prime Minister of Canada turned the House of Commons into a house of pain last night as he brushed aside a fellow member of Parliament. CTV covers Canada like a sheet of ice, and they have the story. The voice you'll hear at the end of this clip is Ruth Ellen Brousseau. She was elbowed but not bowed. And now, watch Justin Trudeau bolting from his seat and reaching in the cluster of MPs to push the opposition whip through. In doing so, he elbows this MP. I was elbowed in the chest by the Prime Minister, um, and then I had to leave. It was very overwhelming, um, and so I, I left the chamber to go and sit into the lobby. Questions abound. Will Trudeau, the Canuck hunk, be eased aside for Paul Manafort, as is the tradition in U.S. politics? Or will Paul Manafort actually be able to take Trudeau on as a client now that he's shown himself to be a head of state with thuggish tendencies and a mean streak? Defenders of Trudeau say that Ruth Ellen Brassau took a dive in an attempt to draw the two-minute minor. But Trudeau did not play any games. He did not trade in deflections or recriminations, perhaps sympathizing with the aggrieved party, who is a 32-year-old single mother whose unlikely rise to parliament makes her a figure of fascination throughout Canada. Trudeau willingly checked himself into the sin bin, and he rose for a point of order, or in French, rappel au règlement. He explained that he was trying to liberate the opposing party whip from a line of MPs who were blocking his progress. I admit I came uh, in physical contact uh, with uh, uh, a number of members as I extended my arm. If anyone feels that they were uh, 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 impacted uh, by my actions, I completely apologize. Now, sensing that this apology might have been interpreted as not the most sincere, and also he used impact as a verb, Trudeau today expounded upon that apology. Mr. Speaker, the way that members behave in this House is important. It's important because we are here to serve Canadians, and Canadians deserve to have their concerns expressed fully and fairly in a direct and dignified manner. I know and I regret that my behavior yesterday failed to meet this standard. And thus ends the bitterest, testiest, most painful incident in recent Canadian political history, which somehow manages to be more polite, proper, and optimistic than the best of U.S. politics. On the show today, I spiel about ISIS and our calculation for what constitutes defeat. But first, a consideration of a political party with some good ideas. A lot of good ideas, in fact. See what good it got them. They're the Whigs. And the American history guys are here to reclaim them from the dustbins of history. 
I went into Indochino, the store. They have stores, Indochino does, and got measured. There are 14 measurement points. The guy did it for me, and he said, I'm going to make you a suit, or I opted for a really good deal on shirts that will fit your body perfectly. I'll tell you how it goes when I get them. I'll tell you all the options, though. It's a lot of fun, and I'm not a clothes horse. I'm barely a clothes seahorse. But you could get monogram cuffs, and you could get the, uh, the uh, what, what, what do they call that when you get the collar colored a little bit? It's a little secret, a little secret between you and the shirt. And I could tell that just by feeling the material and seeing how they uh, looked on people who are wearing them in the store, the guys who sell them, these things look good and sharp because that is the difference between how a measured, a made-to-measure suit feels and fits and how it compares to a generic off-the-rack suit. Like, I always knew this, you always knew this, but... The price. The price was the big problem, you know? When you're talking about a well-crafted, 100% merino wool suit, and it is it is a fitted suit, you figure you're going to pay, I don't know, at least $1,000. Well, guess what? Indochino is running an offer where you get any premium suit for just $399. That is 50% off. That's at Indochino.com. You enter the just at checkout. Shipping is free. There's no reason not to try your first custom-made suit with a deal this good and a suit classic from their premium collection will look good feel good it'll last a long time too that's indochino.com promo code gist for any premium suit for just 399 dollars and free shipping indochino your look your way so i was reading about the wigs the wig party as one does and i came to realize These guys had great policies. I totally agree with them about banking and infrastructure and patronage. My God, they were against the spoil system. In fact, if you put the Whig Party platform against their rivals, the Democrats, as Andrew Jackson refounded the Democratic Party, I would say the Whig Party, history has judged to be right on almost all the issues and the Democrats wrong. Here's what happened with the Whigs. They died out. So I was trying to bring this up to the present and saying, let us compare the two parties now. It might seem to you, listeners of the gist, that one party is more right on the issues than the others, but I wanted to compare it to dueling political parties throughout American history. We usually have two. And what guys better to talk about American American history than the American history guys. They are the they are the guys behind backstory with the American history guys. They are Ed Ayers, Peter Onuf, and Brian Ballow, and they're all here. Hello. Hey, Mike. hey. Hello, gentlemen. So I don't even want to touch on uh, the year 2016, but let's go back as far as you care to. And first of all, I'll ask you this. There has rarely been a time when there's been more than two truly viable parties in the United States. Is that right? Right. Yep. 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 And I I know a lot of political scientists say that because we have a first-past-the-post electoral system, it just lends itself to that. But do you think there's anything either in the Constitution or in the makeup of the American character why we have two parties and not a multi-party system? Yeah, I'd say there's something in the American character, and that is uh, the English legal system, the adversarial system. And the whole country is founded on the party of the patriots against uh, the king. So uh, that idea of a two-party system, I think, is bred in the bone. And so let's go to Andrew Jackson, and let's go to the Whigs. You know my position. (laughs) I thought the Whigs were right, but uh, say a word for the Jacksonians, if you will. 
Oh, the Jacksonians are all about democracy, man. If, uh, right, you know, right. and, and you, we don't really need any qualifications other than being a white man to qualify uh, <laughs> to vote for Andrew Jackson. And if you can got that, maybe 21. Uh, but uh, And that was their whole idea is that this is a country made for white men. And anything that gets in the way of white men's rights or opportunities has got to be gotten rid of, whether it's slavery uh, in the um, South Carolina trying to stop uh, the expansion of Jacksonian power, or, of course, American Indians who are in the way of enormous numbers of white people who would love to take their land. So the Democrats see themselves as the party for creating opportunity for the people who really are the nation. Yeah, or those bureaucrats that are trying to hang on to their offices, right? Well, they, of course, they wouldn't have called them bureaucrats. No. They would just called them, you know, um, the good guys who were working with us. And the Whigs want to ruin all that, Mike. Uh, they're, they're all, you know, about Man, decorum. And yeah, the they're order. the better sort. They're yeah. the aristos. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know they're that against individuals. Well, I know that I know that populism is great, except when you actually look at the dirty, dirty populace. And I know Andrew Jackson invited everyone to traipse about the White House and dirty the furniture there. And that's maybe, you know, it makes him very popular. But when you take things like paper currency, Jackson was against it. The Whigs were for it. Aren't the Whigs right? Won't you at least give me paper currency is a good thing? Well, sure. I mean, actually, our little secret, I'm, I like the wigs better, too. We all, but... like, we all like the wigs. We're, we're just pushing back. <laughs> yeah, we're job. just being— This is our job. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. of course, the real reason we like the wigs, they had the idea of a sort of a national university, which would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But, you know, the idea of improvement, of, in, of using the government to invest and in making yeah. things better for everybody. Connecting the different sections of the country together. Well, well Brian, that's a, you brought up a touchy point here because who are the wigs? Well, they're they're the abolitionists of New England, but they're also the big planners of the South. And so that's the weird thing, Mike. You have to have a party that has to be national. And to do it, you have to put all kinds of people in the bed who don't really usually fit in the bed together. And, Mike, I think there's another thing that you've got to keep in mind. It depends on how you think about American history generally, if you're for it or against it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're well, for I like your podcast. Territorial... Without it, you wouldn't have that. <laughs> Good enough. Good enough for us. No, what I, what I want to say is this. If you're for the conquest of the continent and the, uh, let's not use pejorative language, let's say, uh, removal of Native Americans and uh, the creation of, uh, of a vibrant transcontinental economy and society, uh, they got the formula. What the Jacksonians building on the Jeffersonian initiatives do is to continue the good or the bad work of the British Empire in extending uh, colonization empire to the West. And if that's something that stirs your imagination, you identify with, you say, well, you know, a lot of bad things happen along the way, but isn't it wonderful that this great nation finally emerged and then could improve itself in Whiggishly uh, in its old age? Yeah. Yeah, the Whigs are seen as drags on all that progress, Mike. You know, they're the ones who want to slow things down, consolidate, and kind of go back to that sort of ideas of English improvement rather than American expansion. Exactly. Were they really against expansion, or was their painting of Manifest Destiny not quite so glorious and bold? 
Well, they were against a, a war that we picked with Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and believe that expansion was actually going to lead to, um, you know, Emerson says, you know, it's like the man who ate the poison. You know, it's, it's going to, if they consume this big piece of Mexico, it's actually going to poison us. And that's what ended up happening with expansion of slavery. So, yeah, they were, I think that they would not have been opposed to expanding the American empire, but they didn't want to do it, uh, A, to expand slavery, and B, by going to war. So and if uh, the okay. Whigs are in favor of economic development, including uh, early industrialization, and ultimately the creation of a large working class, uh, and if there's no opportunity to move west and the price of the labor is debased and you can exploit workers, uh, I'm going to just throw a, a bit of a Marxist twist here. Yeah. Uh, then, then you're talking about the immiseration of the white working class, those very people who flourish in the Jacksonian vision of Manifest Destiny. So uh, there, there are different ways to cut both of these. I think the simple way to get out of this conundrum is just to um, disavow American history generally. <laughs> <laughs> Except for our podcast. <laughs> yes, right. Maybe it could be a sci-fi type podcast, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Whigs die out, and I'm probably being overly reductive, although historians always say that about lay people, but in their place come the Republicans. How correct is that? And is the Republican Party really a party or is it just Abraham Lincoln and, you know, some hodgepodge ragtag group of people who support him? Right. Is it just Diana Ross without the Supreme Court? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so tired of that cliche analogy. <laughs> that 19th century analogy. Yeah, well, well, you know, here's what's interesting. Uh, the Whigs do die, but before they are replaced by the Republicans, you've got this weird mutant uh, forms of politics coming up. You've got the know-nothings mm. uh, who are the most direct progenitor of the Republicans. And mm -hmm. what do they oppose? Immigration. Wall builders, eh? Yeah, well, that's right. And so you have, you know, so the Republicans are coming in. They're saying, okay, we're not so sure about the immigrants ourselves. We're kind of like the Whigs, and we lo really love Protestantism. We like order. But on the other hand, uh, what we're really about is kind of a Jacksonian vision of expanding the opportunities mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for white people. Yep. And to do that, you're going to have to check slavery. You're going to have to stop the pollution of the nation by slavery. So the Republican Party begins before Lincoln. Lincoln, he's almost the not, not the nominee even in 1860. Uh, you know, he comes in, he comes from a brokered convention. So it's only after mainly he's actually dead because even when he's reelected, there's a lot of people who are still suspicious of him. So Ed, tell me about the election results. When Lincoln runs again. I think that's just incredible. Yeah. What Brian's prodded me to tell you is something I still find amazing. After four years of the Civil War, in which Lincoln leads us through incredible minefield and into an incredibly positive outcome of the end of slavery, he wins the same percentage of the vote in the North that he'd won in 1860. 45% huh. of white Northern men still will not vote for Abraham freaking Lincoln in 1864. And in most of the North, the number's almost 49%, Brian. So I think as you think about these two parties, Mike, and the, the tension between them and the people being able to see where justice and wisdom lie, the fact that people would not fall in behind Lincoln in the great crisis of the nation tells you a lot. Mm -hmm. Was that yeah. part of the hashtag Never Lincoln movement? It was. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been hidden until this moment. Uh, but you, you heard it here first, folks. And then after he was killed and after he was made a martyr, uh, that was forgotten. That was swept under the rug. Everyone in the North said, yeah, he was my guy all along. 
Well, there was victory in the war, of course. And then. Yeah, well, I, you know, as it happens, I've just been reading some newspapers from exactly this month uh, in the last couple of days. And the Democrats who put out a, a vicious parody of his second inaugural address in March of 1865, uh, it really is like something Stephen Colbert would do, you know. Uh, and three weeks later, they say... Oh, my God. He was the only person that could have saved us. So it's pretty <laughs> yeah. amazing how quickly yeah. they pivot. But then they go right back in and attack Republicans as if he'd never lived. I know there were a few factions of Democrats, but at that, possibly even Republicans, you tell me. But at that yeah. point, can we assess where the two parties stand? And remember, the South isn't even you know, part of the uh, That's right. United States proper. But if we take the Democrat policies versus the Republican policies in, say, 1864, can we say the Republicans yep. are? right on the issues across the board? The short answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the Democrats did not change their position at all. In fact, that they are opposed, you may remember the Lincoln movie, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, as even after the war has basically been won, and they do not change their minds at all. The Democrats basically cannot be moved. And what they are for is anything against black people, that's really the thing that you read the most in all their editorials. The other things that they're uh, against are anything the Republicans want. Whatever the Republicans put up, they're going to tear it down. And, but ironically, they would go back to what Peter was talking about before, this Jacksonian vision of white men being able to do whatever they want to do without anybody telling them what to do. And they see the Republicans as the kind of the, the intrusive party, you know, the nanny state yeah, mm-hmm. who are going to prevent those white men from protecting their families and the women in their families. Yeah, they, they invent a terrible word in, in 1864, miscegenation, which they just make up, but it's supposed to sound scientific and it means the mixing of the races. And that's mm-hmm. supposedly what the Republicans are all up for. Oh, I didn't even so know that. They're, they're, they're despicable, yeah. the Democrats of 1864. So, yeah, but it, it is okay. a reflex throughout American history that's kind of defending your rights. Uh, and, of course, it has many ugly manifestations, but defending your racial privilege, uh, defending your property against taxation, defending yep. yourself against the pollution of immigration. Defending your locality against the intrusion of that big, bad federal government. That, that's right. And, and it's very easy to uh, to uh, give us an ugly portrait of that. And it often is very ugly. But there is something fundamental about American commitment to rights and liberties that uh, lends itself to this uh, kind of defensive thinking. And so from the so 1860s on, the Republicans <laughs> elect, the Republicans win presidential elections, uh, not Grover Cleveland, but election after election. They eventually become corrupt and challenged by the Democrats. But I want to compare the Republicans of the 1860, which were right on the issues and then had great electoral success, to the Democrats yeah. of, say, 1824, where we all kind of agreed that maybe the Whigs were better on the issue, but they lost. What's the lesson there? That politics trumps actual ideas, that don't be so sure that the better ideas uh, win out in the long run? What do you think? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. One thing I would point out is that the closest elections in American history were during all that period where the Republicans won. 49.9% of people would have been Democrats during all that period. And a heck of a lot of people, at least in the North, were voting in those elections. Yeah, the highest voter turnout in American mm-hmm, history, too. Mm-hmm. So what we think of, you know, I'm sure your le- your listeners would say, quick, see if I can name the presidents between, say, 
uh, uh, Ulysses Grant and Teddy Roosevelt, and they would be a lot of flopping around, I'm sure. Ed himself is going to Wikipedia right now. (laughs) Uh, But the point being is that the time we think elections are most subtle is when they were actually most deeply contested. And the ideology doesn't change. It's just what Peter said. It is the party of right and of freedom and of autonomy versus the party of trying to kind of Whiggish, trying to steer uh, the nation into progress. And uh, the Republicans, you know, barely win, but they do win repeatedly. So there's, so, an echo, I, there's an echo to today, personal freedom versus progress ever so reluctantly. President Obama talking about turning that ship, that aircraft carrier of state, two degrees. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it, it's what Peter said from the very beginning, sort of built into the DNA of this country. The two polarities are leave me alone and do something good for me. <laughs> uh, right. And the, the two parties are different variants of that all along. And, and, or uh, do ideology. something good for me and leave me alone yeah. the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But this can flip ideologically so that uh, during the 60s, of course, uh, the state was awful. We, we uh, young people. This is the 1960s you're referring to. 1960s, that's right. That's right. Uh, we th- we thought that the great enemy was the state. Of course, uh, that's the, what we want to resurrect now in the face of modern right wing populism. Uh, it's humbling, though, when you think about uh, the causes you would have supported in the past, the, and uh, and and how your positions are going to flip. Uh, and they have for all Americans, I think, uh, situationally and opportunistically. It's hard to predict where we're going to go on the question of the size and power of the state. Uh, there is a libertarian strain on both sides of the aisle, and uh, we respond to that. So that last voice you heard was Peter Onuf. He has that honey Garrison Keillor-esque, but, you know, less Minnesotan-type accent. Ed Ayers has the most <laughs> southern one. And Brian Ballow, the three of them make up the American History Guys, and their podcast is called Backstory. This is just a taste of it. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. You can take off your wig now. All right, yeah. Wonder Capital is a Techstars-backed company with headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. Wonder Capital allows investors to invest in solar projects across the country. Since the beginning of the year, Wonder has originated over $25 million worth of solar projects. Your investment goes directly to helping U.S. businesses install solar panels. As they repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly cash flows in the form of interest payments. Wonder doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Wonder has two funds available, the Wonder Income Fund, which returns 6% a year during a 10-year period, and the Wonder Bridge Fund, which returns 11% a year during a two-year period. Investors with Wonder help businesses save money by going solar. Investors make money in the form of interest payments, and they also help to fight climate change by reducing greenhouse gases. We should say past performance is not an indicator of future gains. And to find out more about the newest Wonder Solar Fund, with a targeted 11% rate of return, go to wondercapital.com slash money. And now the spiel, what ISIS was. Ayman al-Zwahiri, leader of al-Qaeda, is out again with a taped message. Oh yeah, that guy. You forgot about him, didn't you? But he's still out there. It's like the Conan O'Brien show or the rapper, Loopy Fiasco. Oh, yeah. Oh, that guy used to be big. Wait, wait. 
Girls, the, the series Girls, is Girls still on? No way. Ayman al-Zwahiri, he's still on? He's still running Al-Qaeda? Who knew? And according to internet commenters, between Lena Dunham and Ayman al-Zwahiri, one of them definitely is ruining everything. So Ayman al-Zwahiri, he's still on the air. A little bit of him. That was actually from 2014. What do, you, what do you think? I'm going to play his current message? No way. But what he is doing, people who've seen the current video say, is boostering the Nusra Front in Syria, the rivals of the Islamic State in Syria. And, you know, it does seem like all the attention we pay is to the fight against the Islamic State. Sorry, I should say that all the attention we pay is to our failures in the fight against the Islamic State, ISIS. And it's especially troubling because failure is defined as any time ISIS kills anyone anywhere ever. Anywhere ever is defined as the U.S. and Europe, not including NATO ally, Turkey. But you know, the U.S., the West, is having success against the Islamic State. By a number of measurements, the Islamic State is losing to the U.S. Here's a Washington Post article from a couple months ago. The Islamic State is facing an unprecedented cash crunch in its home territory, U.S. counterterrorism officials say, as months of strikes on oil facilities and financial institutions take a deepening toll on the group's ability to pay its fighters or to carry out operations. ISIS has lost 45% of the territory it once held, and strikes against oil fields, refineries, and tankers have cut their oil production by a third, and oil prices are plummeting, so they're hurting financially. And you know where else they're hurting? Actually, in physical pain. The U.S. has killed 25,000 ISIS fighters, according to the Pentagon. If 25,000 is too large so as to be an abstraction, let's just talk about one bad guy for a second. Yesterday, U.S. Army Colonel Steve Warren, spokesman for the U.S.-led coalition battling ISIS in Iraq and Syria, talked about the the killing of one specific mid-level ISIS commander, Abu Hamza. He was sort of a cheerleader uh, for for the local forces here, Uh, and he's a cheerleader who will cheer no more. Uh, because he's dead. His deadness, the colonel went on to say, greatly impacts his efficacy in a cheerleading capacity because they find a largely inverse correlation between deceasedness and vim. And, of course, with no vim, it is very hard for you to inspire vim in others. So while it stands to reason that so effectively killing ISIS figures leads to a decrease in potency of said figures and ISIS at large, credit is barely ever given for these actions, and ISIS is almost never regarded on the stump, in the public imagination, as anything less than the potent viper it once was. Now, I'll admit, there are complicating matters, such as the fact that ISIS has been carrying out suicide bombings that have killed scores in Baghdad in the last few days. Experts point to that as a sign that they're weak, that they're desperately trying to assert their relevance. I don't know if I go that far. A real sign of weakness would be them not killing anyone. And as Max Boot cautions, when the Bush administration offered a similar spin about al-Qaeda in Iraq from 2003 to 2007, when it called them dead enders, we were all right to be skeptical of that claim. 
So I am skeptical of the claim that these suicide bombings show that ISIS is weakening, though there's plenty of evidence that they are weakening. You know, skepticism doesn't mean that you immediately buy the opposite extreme. Evidence can actually lead to ambiguous conclusions, not just because the evidence is hazy, but because in reality, the future of ISIS is hazy. And when I say that no one's paying attention, I mean, someone is. I read you those stories in the newspaper. You heard them on this podcast. So you're paying attention. I'm paying attention. We're paying attention. But we don't really, societally, have anything close to an accurate assessment on how the war on ISIS is going. The American public, in general, vaguely understands that they're scary. And that fear sometimes ticks down a fraction, maybe due to inattention. If ISIS isn't in the news for weeks, we get a tiny bit less scared. But then with any attack at all, the fear rockets up again. So on the one hand, there is a kind of bank shot justice in the fact that most Americans forgot about, if they ever knew, Ayman al-Zwahiri. And it is good that he's been relegated to obscurity, though I would like a few special ops forces to take out the guy. Maybe not SEAL Team 6, SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, something like that. And I am reminded of the F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that the sign of a first-rate intellect is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time. Maybe the sign of a first-rate electorate is the ability to remember two opposing Sunni extremist groups in the mind at the same time and the ability to properly assess their potency. ISIS is definitely bloodthirsty and scary, and we should take them seriously. But by a reasonable scorecard, the U.S. is putting a hurt on ISIS. And as far as al-Qaeda goes, wait, al-Qaeda? They're still a thing? It's like uh, John and Kate plus eight. Is that thing still on? Yeah, it's still on, and it still slightly threatens America. Oh, wait, now I'm talking about al-Qaeda again. I don't think the terrorist group should be taken lightly, but I hate the fact that we've given them power to occasionally scare the hell out of us, but most Americans haven't given themselves the ability to accurately assess them and not get scared. So let's not lose hope. And in that vein, I will end from another line from that same F. Scott Fitzgerald essay. One should be able to see the things that are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist. She was once brusquely shunted aside by Evo Morales of Bolivia. Mary Wilson, the other producer of The Gist, held her head high when she was rudely jostled by Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Liktai got into a tete-a-tete with Secretary of the Central Military Commission and General Secretary of Vietnam Nguyen Phu Trong who for some reason found the tete-a-tete offensive. Andy Bowers was on the receiving end of a forearm shiver from Kim Kilson, Prime Minister of Greenland, who explained, in Greenland, shivering is what forearms do. The gist. Just last week, we got into it with Beatrix and Prince Klaus of the Netherlands. But since they abdicated power in 2013, it was just another in a series of parking-related skirmishes with elderly Dutch couples, one of whom was named Klaus. Oomperu, dapperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.